0: Paleo nerds, two grown men. One plays with dolls. The other draws dinosaurs with crayons. Together they explore the prehistoric past with experts from across the globe. Paleo nerds, cause deep time will blow your mind.
1: Welcome to Paleo Nerds, the podcast. I'm David Strassman, professional ventriloquist, amateur paleontologist. Fossils? We're going to be talking to Alaskan artist Ray Troll. That's me. A fellow paleo nerd. And where are you?
0: I am sitting in my living room here in Ketchikan, Alaska, looking out over the Tongass Narrows. It's a rainy day.
1: What is a Tongass Narrows?
0: (laughs) Uh well, I live in the Tongass National Forest. It's uh, it's a native name. Tongass means the head of a sea lion. And, I never knew that. Uh, that's right. Yeah, no, I'm one of the few people that actually knows that. And because uh, I asked a member of the Tongass tribe, what does Tongass mean? It means the head of a sea lion.
1: So what is a Narrows?
0: Well, the Narrows is a little narrow passage of water. I'm looking out at uh, Panic Island
1: across the way.
0: And uh, that's the Tongas Narrows, and ships come and go, and I can see them coming and going.
1: And now, because of the COVID-19, there are no cruise ships for the entire year.
0: There's nary a boat in the channel. Where are you, Dave?
1: I am in Ojai, California, and Ojai is a beautiful little rural town surrounded by mountains an hour and a half north of Los Angeles, and Ojai means The Nest, it's a Chumash, Native American Indian word. Ojai is protected from weather. It's protected from fires, as we saw a couple of years ago. Every square inch of forest burned around Ojai, but the town itself. So Wow, wow. We are fortunate to be in the nest.
0: I'm an artist. I, I make my living doing art. I've been drawing pictures all my life. What do you do, Dave?
1: <laughs> I play with dolls for a living.
0: Wow. We're two lucky guys. How is it that a person plays with dolls for a living?
1: Well, I'm a ventriloquist, and uh, I perform all over the world, mostly now, though, in Australia and New Zealand, England, Ireland, Scotland. How does someone get started, you want to know? Well, I want
0: to know. I mean, how, how is it that you're... You perform over there, and we don't know about you here in the United States. What's up with that?
1: Oh, I had a huge career in the United States in the late 80s and very early 90s. I was on all the TV shows. Introduce a ventriloquist like this. Ladies and gentlemen, a man and a piece of wood. I hope they make you laugh. <laughs> Mr. David Strassman. And then I got an invite to Australia. Good G'day, mate and I went ballistic there, and I basically found immense fame and came home. No one knew who I was, and I loved that fact that I could walk into a grocery store in my own hometown and not get hounded by fans and autograph seekers. So I was able to establish notoriety in one part of the world and complete anonymity in the other. That's the way it's been ever since, and I love it.
0: And we met all those years ago, and I doubted that story for many years <laughs> until I actually went to Australia and, and until I I interviewed just about every Australian I ever ran into. Do you know who David Strassman is? And by golly, I'd say 90% of them do you. Does the name David Strassman mean anything to you?
1: Not to me. Not to me.
0: <laughs> so, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's what I am. I'm a ventriloquist and you're an artist, but... We are here on a podcast called Paleo Nerds. What is a paleo nerd, Ray?
0: Ah, what is a paleo nerd? A paleo nerd is a grown man or woman who still loves dinosaurs as much as they did when they were a kid, if not more so.
1: That childlike wonder of dinosaurs and those little plastic little guys in the the sand.
0: That's how it started for me, man. I got some toys uh, mom and dad uh, bought me for Christmas, I think, in 1959, maybe 1960.
1: God, I was three years old then.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm much older than you, Dave. But uh, that's where my dinosaur love uh, started. And, you know, I mean, most most kids go through a phase like that. But, uh, you know, and then about age 9 or 10, they give it up. But others, like the true paleo nerds, keep it going their entire life. Did lives. you have like a
1: plastic set of dinosaurs, a little plastic?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, my brother found the very set. So I've actually got the set all, all over again. And it was I was kind of weeping when I saw the little Allosaurus and the (sighs) tyrannosaurus. And yeah, it was pretty cool.
1: You have the actual little dinosaurs that piqued your interest.
0: Yes. Yes, I do.
1: Well, my father took me to the La Brea Tar Pits when I was a child because we lived not far from there. And at the time, there was no museum. There was just a bunch of seeping tar holes with with fences around them and one pit that was being excavated, which you couldn't look into. So
0: there was no museum there at the time? No
1: museum. This is before the George C. Page Museum. And two things happened. Once I fell in love with elephants and mammoths, just fell in love with the idea of that they were alive not too long ago, and there's the bones right there. And I saw a sparrow in the tar. Half, oh, really? half in the tar. It was dead. Ah! Yeah. It was dead, but I realized. Oh no, that bird is gonna sink in the tar pits.
0: You went to see the seeping tar holes. I like the sound of that. It's kind of weird. It sounds dirty. Yeah, it sounds dirty. But so you you saw the seeping uh, tar. Was actually, not tar pits. I think they they call them tar seeps. I think officially, but there was no museum at the time. But how old were you when Dad took you there?
1: Oh, I would have been five, five or six. So we're talking sixty-two.
0: Boomer. There was actually a a tusk sticking out of the, the tar?
1: No, there is this rotunda that was a pit that was excavated. It's a round rotunda. It's still there. The gates are locked. You can't go in. You can kind of see in. And down about 15 feet from where there's a round circular observation deck, you look down and there was a pile of jumbled bones like you see, You know, La Brea's bones, nothing came out as a complete skeleton, as you know. It literally is a jumble of bones. Because you think there were no complete skeletons there. In fact, most of the skeletons at the George C. Page Museum are comprised of many individuals because they could never just find a complete skeleton.
0: Yeah, Yeah. lots of times that is the case uh, almost anywhere in the world. You rarely find articulated skeletons, but every now and then it happens. My paleo passion started with uh, you know, that dinosaur set. But what I started doing, you know, age four, I, I distinctly remember picking up that crayon and drawing. The very first thing I can remember drawing ever in my life, dinosaurs. I think I drew a triceratops. And, of course, doing the sound effects, I had to have the tyrannosaurus coming at it. And I've been drawing ever since, man.
1: But what was your inspiration? Was it Harry house's stop action or was it the book's? And the plastic models. Is the book of plastic models, and
0: also at the time there actually was sort of a little paleo scene there in the early '60s, and you could get uh, dinosaurs would come in. Uh, you get little toys in cereal cereal boxes, so along with the sugar. So I began to associate dinosaurs with food and sugar and all that. <laughs> uh, but I would demand. I have
1: Pavlov's Triceratops.
0: I have many siblings, and I would fight them, or I would insist rainy gets the dinosaurs so i'd fight them get the dinosaurs and all that but but soon i began to uh you know find that drawing was something i was good at and i began to parlay my dinosaur drawings for favors at the school and at, at kindergarten so really that was kind of yeah that was the uh, start of you know favors
1: if you show me yours i'll show you mine
0: you know i want to play in that swing set now dinosaur drawing yeah okay go okay, again okay. no
1: way no way What was the first drawing you ever did that you got like really serious recognition?
0: The kindergarten teacher had me do the school set for the play. So I got to paint the giant uh, shoe. The kids, (laughs) you know, the mother and the old lady live in the shoe. But I began to immediately go, wait a minute, I'm onto something. I'm being treated special because I can draw. And it was the dinosaurs that led me there. And really, it's it's so deeply ingrained in me, Dave, that but the first word I can remember spelling was dinosaur. Serious. I wanted to be an artist my entire life, but there was a moment there around the Apollo moon landings and all that same, same period way back in 1969, 68, where I wanted to be a pilot and, uh, be, really? and join the Air Force. Yeah, yeah.
1: I didn't know that one.
0: I love airplanes almost as much as I love dinosaurs. No way. So I
1: love airplanes as much as I love I know. Love we, let's
0: switch the podcast topic, though. No because i have got airplane books over there well
1: I uh, was a private pilot for 30 years
0: and along with being a ventriloquist along with being a ventriloquist
1: I'm not moving my lips right now let's get back on topic what does paleo mean
0: paleo means old what does it mean paleo thank you old it's old Old. it's what you are
1: Ray because you keep saying you're older than me
0: I am I am David you're not Truly a paleo nerd then. You didn't dive way deep into it as a kid. I mean, you did kind of. Not at all. And NASA and the astronauts, that was your main thing. When did you rekindle this interest? How did you come back around to it? So uh, mine has been steady on all throughout my life. And yours has started and stopped,
1: it sounds like. My brother, who passed away in 2007, he had a love of geology. And he told me about John McPhee's book, Basin, and Range. And I read John McPhee's introductory book on geology and then got hooked and that led me to the rediscover of paleontology. And I was living in New York at the time. When I moved to California, I realized I now have access to the deserts and and amazing fossil sites. And that was really what rekindled my interest in paleontology. And I started reading voraciously in the 80s and 90s. I read Wonderful Life by Stephen Gould. I read The Dinosaur Heresies by... um, Bakker. Bacher, yeah. He's the, uh, of course, the fictional character, or the (laughs) non-fictional character uh, depicted in Jurassic Park. He gets eaten. Yeah, so it was voracious reading of anything I could get my hands on. Uh, And then I started collecting.
0: And then one day you and I met.
1: I moved to Ketchikan, bought a house in Ketchikan in 2001. And you had
0: been doing shows up in the Anchorage area, right? So you had been entertaining in Alaska. Too oh, t-
1: I came to Alaska in 1980. I uh, got a call that said, "You're you're hired in a topless, bottomless strip club for six hundred dollars a week for six weeks. All right? And it's, yeah, and it starts in two weeks. And I went, I am there. Wow. Oh so man. You- <laughs> oh man. That's
0: another tale. So it was in that year 2001 that we met. And I think the very first words out of your mouth were, I have the biggest megalodon tooth in the world, or one of.
1: Mine's bigger than yours.
0: You've been saying that for years, and actually I think that's on my shelf
1: now. I believe I passed that baton to you, and you now own it. And one day, you'll have to give it away to someone.
0: I don't want it anymore. So Dave, hey, I want to know, man, what is the coolest fossil that you have ever
1: found? I haven't found that many cool ones, but I would think, I think the coolest paleo thing I ever found was not a fossil, it was an arrowhead. I've never found an arrowhead. And I was out in the Sonoran Desert near Bisbee, Arizona, closer to actually Tombstone, Arizona, in some Devonian marine sediment where you find crinoids and little bits of of shell and stuff like that.
0: Crinoids, Dave.
1: Crinoids, sorry.
0: Crinoids, also known as sea lilies, are still alive today with over 600 species living in the oceans. They are a class within the Echinodermata phylum. The Echinoderms also include sea stars, brittle stars, sea urchins, sand dollars, and sea cucumbers. And yes, you can eat a sea cucumber even though they're slimy and really weird looking. And sea urchins too for that matter, but watch out for those spines!
1: crinoids if, if it wasn't for you I'd be mispronouncing the entire taxonomic dictionary he's always correcting me and I'm out there looking for crinoid parts which they're quite abundant near this road cut and it's hot and I look down out in the middle of the desert and there is an arrowhead just sitting out there and and I literally just went oh my god how long has this been here? Why is this here? It's not obviously near a cave or a or a village site. This is probably an arrow that some Native American shot at an animal and missed, and he lost his arrow, and the, the shaft long has has dissolved away. And to me, that was one of the greatest finds ever. And of course, cool. over the years, I've found trilobites, some of the oldest ones in the Mojave Desert, and I've uh, found the only dinosaur tracks in California. I found all kinds of stuff, but I, don't, I think that would have been my joy moment finding that one Arrowhead.
0: What what land were you on at that time? Was it BLM land or was it public land? I have
1: no idea. I'm guessing. Why are, are some, you? Hey, you gonna call someone to get have me arrested?
0: I'm just saying. There's
1: some collecting well, there's some rules very that serious really rules. Isn't yes, there?
0: yeah. Yeah, there, there in are. fact,
1: you were telling me we should interview a guy, the whole dinosaur debacle, the T-Rex that was...
0: Oh, that gets very complicated very fast. Dinosaur named Sue, T-Rex? That's right. Yeah.
1: The dinosaur that got...
0: Impounded by the FBI and yeah. uh, drug out in court for many, many years, but yeah. uh, Dinosaur 13, there's a movie it. about it.
1: Dinosaur 13. So tell me, that was my amazing find that really blew me away. And, of course, I was standing next to my ex-wife when she found a pumice.
0: I think you say pumice, actually.
1: Are you just going (laughs) to correct me on everything? Pumice, pumice?
0: But then we can also go to the dictionary. You know what?
1: I'll grimace as you say pumice.
0: Yeah, Google it. All right. You were about to ask me for a cool story?
1: Well, what is the most amazing drop-to-your-knees fossil find in your lifetime?
0: Well, I i lived a fossil-deprived childhood, you know, I was drawing dinosaurs, I was obsessed with dinosaurs, and I was an Air Force brat, so we were moving all the time, I was actually in some pretty good fossil territory, but i never, I don't know, was never able to really go find fossils, I found a few brachiopods as a kid.
1: all right Ray. What's a brachiopod?
0: Brachiopod, it looks like a clamshell, but Devonian clamshells up in uh, western New York, around the town of Corning, where I was born. And that was pretty cool, but nothing truly memorable. And uh, so I was living this fossil deprived life. But I would also pick up the random rock every now and then and go, "Wow, this is a leg bone of a of a T Rex. It must be." And I would collect these things, and then of course I'd show them to an adult that might know something. And my heart was always broken. No, it's just a rock, right? But <laughs> as a middle aged man, I finally learned that you got to go to where the fossils are. You're not going to find them just any old place. There are certain type of rocks you need to go to. And if you go to those
1: rocks... Having said that, I do remember being in a car on the way to Red Rocks in Colorado with Kirk Johnson. Kirk Johnson, by the way, is currently head of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And we pulled off the road and went to some neighborhood in Denver. And he said, Oh, do you want to see a stegosaurus bones?" Sticking out of the side of the hill.
0: It was a triceratops, actually.
1: (laughs) Stegosaurus, triceratops. Okay. It
0: was a triceratops. The bone is still in the guy's backyard. And there it was. And actually, yeah, Kirk and I, he, he took me there. We looked at it. And there are more bones. But he has no idea that he's got that stuff in his right. backyard. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a triceratops and maybe a duck dinosaur. Not a stegosaurus. Those were Jurassic. So we were in Cretaceous. You're color. right.
1: They were. You're right. right. Stegosaurus were not even in Jurassic. the same period as uh, T-Rexes.
0: Colorado's got Jurassic and Cretaceous stuff. But anyways... Probably my ultimate moment of uh, dinosaur or, or just fossil hunting was. Being lucky enough to go on a, a trip to the Colville River. Cretaceous outcrops along the Colville River on the very northern edge of Alaska in 2012. And I was with four other guys. Is this
1: North Slope?
0: Yeah, North Slope. And the Cretaceous bone beds up there. And uh, talk about uh, lots of bones. And when you go to a bone bed locality, it's only a matter of moments before you look, you see lots and lots of bones.
1: But they're, but they're chunks, though. They're not museum quality. They're just so uh, many of them, but they're chunks, right?
0: Uh, there's a lot of chunks the world is full of chunkosauruses, but when you go to a bone bed there's beautiful bones and there were hadrosaur and these were hadrosaur bones
1: duckbill dinosaur right
0: but the thing the challenge to find in the midst of all of these hundreds of uh duckbill dinosaur bones was to find the evidence of a predatory dinosaur and at the end of a week, almost a week out there, in the Colville River, there on the muddy slopes of the Colville, Dr. Johnson is in the hole next to me, he's digging away. Hadrosaur, hadrosaur bone, hadrosaur bone. Finally, I'm just trying to remember this, which came first. But I the think chicken? That no. Well, he was finding all these tailbone, baby hadrosaur tailbone section, laying all out one after the other, and I'm finding from the same the individual,
1: bones. or were these just a yeah, collection? Yeah,
0: they look like at least one complete tail right, from right. one individual, so slightly articulated, one after the other. And he had maybe sixty of these all lined up. I'm not kidding. They're just up. What? There's another one. Another one. A very neat little hole, and I'm digging away. and It's raining, but then, clink! There I found it. I found the Nanuksaurus tooth. And that's a Tyrannosaur. It's uh, before Tyrannosaurus rex evolved. This is about 70 million years old. And there was...
1: Wait, 70 million from present day?
0: From present day, yeah. So you're saying million 5 years million,
1: years. million before the end of the Cretaceous? Yeah. And there were Tyrannosauruses 5 million, four years million before the Tyrannosauruses evolved from their predecessor 4 million before they all got wiped out?
0: Most species in the world, when I... When you talk to folks, how long do species last or whatever? I didn't know that.
1: Tyrannosaurus, I mean, obviously, there's so many theropod giant meat eaters for for 100 million years. But you're saying the Tyrannosaurus, like Sue in Chicago Field Museum, that species is only 4 million years old?
0: No, 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 no. It's probably less than that. Probably a million and a half.
1: You're saying the entire species of Tyrannosaurus only existed on planet Earth for a million and a half years?
0: Well, you're talking Tyrannosaurus rex. Right. Rex is the species. Right. Right? Tyrannosaurus is the genus. Here's a quick aside. Just in case you're wondering, T. rex lived and thrived in Western North America on a landmass known as Laramidia from 68 to 66 million years ago. That's 2 million years for the Tyra King's bloody reign. Most experts believe that it evolved from Daspletosaurus, a relative of Albertosaurus. Although some scientists favor the Asian Tyrannosaur tarbosaurus as an ancestral contender they all had big toothy heads huge legs and tiny tiny little arms This is what you begin to realize, too, with paleontology, is that everything is a verb, man. (laughs) You know, life was so transient and malleable. Species come and go.
1: Right. So give me an example of a contemporary animal that's only a few hundred years old. I mean, some of the finches that have evolved in the Galapagos since Darwin. So I know there have been evidence of Darwinian evolution in the Galapagos finches since he was there. To say, oh, wow, look, some of these finches have adapted, they've changed, and we call them a new family or a new s- genus
0: species new, new species. species my monomic for this my slightly inappropriate monomic is king Benomina. Philip, Benomina. king philip can only fake good sex
1: king so kingdom
0: king philip kingdom phylum phylum class class and order keep going only fake family good genus sex King Philip can only fake good sex.
1: I've got to memorize this?
0: This is what happens when a ventriloquist and an artist try to do a podcast and explain (laughs) science to people, man.
1: Yeah, but you're just explaining it to me because I don't know this stuff.
0: To be able to find a fossil of a living animal.
1: You mean an animal that once was living. What do you mean?
0: Right, but to find something in stone. The fossilization process... You know, is, take
1: several million years.
0: Well, any a fossil is evidence of any previous life, right? Yes. There can be bones from the Cretaceous that are still bone, but there can also be fence posts from the eighteen hundreds that have turned to rock. You know, I mean, correct. So it's a big deal. When I was down in uh, Washington State a few years back, when we were working on the cruise of the fossil coastline book went uh, fossil fishing with David Montgomery from the University of Washington and and, uh, Kirk Johnson. We went down to a uh, fossil site in Washington State, and there were beautifully preserved one-million-year-old sockeye salmon fossils. Our modern-day salmon, Oncorhynchus nurca, that's Oncorhynchus And Then there are the fossils that are a million years old, and it's the same species. It's the same genus and species. You don't get that because really species evolve and come and go. Our species alone, our species is maybe 200,000 years old. We're not a million years old as far as we know yet. Correct. But we keep pushing that back. But I'm just saying that it's all a blur. Like where do you say a species starts and stops?
1: Of course, with the absence of fossils in the fossil record, there are gaps which are difficult to interpret. I have a question If Tyrannosaurus rex is only a four million year old species, one million year old, maybe one million, maybe. Well, what was its? Well, that's because you've only found bones in that one million year of strata,
0: correct? You're correct. So you get them in the formations, Hell Creek formation.
1: But what was the species before Tyrannosaurus rex?
0: Oh, what is it? Uh, Albertosaurus is a candidate. Right. That's about at 68 million, I think.
1: And how long did he hang before he turned into T-Rex?
0: He or she. They were in that 68 million span. Nanooks is maybe 69, 70 million years old. And then Hell Creek Formation is 66 million years old because this comet hits. And as some of my scientist buddies say, that you know we're getting, we're knowing so much more about calibrating time now. We might even get it down to the afternoon that the in the time of day that the comet hit.
1: Yeah, it was a Thursday at three thirty. Let's get back to your Nanucosaurus, which reminds me of the Frank Zappa song, "Please Don't Eat That Yellow Snow." But watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. Let's go to your Nanukasaurus moment of of wonder.
0: So there I was. In that rainy little hole, that day, that August day in 2012, Kirk beside me, he'd been finding all those dinosaur bones, and click, and there it was. I had my little hammer chipping away, and actually I was surprised at how easy it was. This is actually not rock that we're going through. It's basically really tough, kind of hard dirt, so you could just sort of claw through the hard dirt and find click bone, and I click, and there it was. Picked up the tooth. It was about... Maybe two inches long, serrated edges. And if I get into the story enough, I actually start crying. I, 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 I teared up because it was uh, it was a, a childhood
1: dream come true, and I'm tearing up now, man. <laughs> I think you're burping. You're burping, <laughs> burping from the Coca-Cola. coke you just drank. Don't don't bullshit me.
0: <laughs> ah, don't. So wait,
1: was this tooth have like the serrated edges on both sides?
0: Serrated edges on both wow. sides. So it was, it was a really cool moment because uh, it was a childhood dream come true. I'd always dreamed of being a paleontologist. I was a 58-year-old man sitting in that muddy little hole at the time. and
1: Crying over an old tooth. That's pathetic. Weeping.
0: And Kurt took a picture of me. And then moments later, not to be outdone, what does the good doctor find? He finds something that maybe is arguably cooler. He found a raptor tooth which is very tiny, but talk about your razor edge on it. It was just serrated, but it was like a little tiny, ultra-sharp arrowhead. But wow. from a Troodon, Troodon, and some people say Troodon. What is it? So I don't know. Describe it's, what
1: a Troodon looks like. A bipedal. Troodon is
0: a raptor. It's, uh, and actually, the Alaskan uh, raptors were actually slightly larger than their southern cousins.
1: Okay, I need to just stop you right here. Alaskan dinosaur raptor. This is obviously... You're at the North Slope at probably what? Uh, latitude 70. 70 degrees. Yeah. So you're 30 degrees from the North Pole. High, high Arctic latitudes. Obviously, this is land that uh, 70 million years ago was at either a lower latitude or it was warmer through a difference in climate.
0: Actually, from the research that uh, my scientist buddies have been doing, that area of land was actually farther north at the time, and not farther south.
1: So the climate was definitively warmer or tropical or savanna or what?
0: It was basically, it it was warm. There were no ice caps on the planet then. It was forested because we found big chunks of petrified tree trunks up there.
1: So that's the coolest fossil you ever found. What is the coolest fossil that you've had in your hands or would like to see or touch or salivate over?
0: Far and away the coolest fossil I ever beheld was one that transfixed me and ruled my life for a good twenty plus years. It was. Let me guess. You know it. Helicoprion,
1: the buzzsaw shark, whorl, the whorl.
0: That's right, right. I say helicoprion. And does anybody like else say
1: helicoprion?
0: Most of the world. Okay, yeah.
1: so then. That, but I'm putting it back
0: man. I'm putting the hell back in helicoprion. I
1: like that. Okay, the hell because this was right. a. Mother of a shark. This was a sharp shark.
0: It was a sh- very sharp shark. This had
1: shark. a whorl of a round buzzsaw
0: of teeth. A buzzsaw of teeth. But the day that I saw it was 1993, not far from you. Was
1: In Los Angeles, L.A. County Museum. The L.A.
0: County Museum. I was touring the collection with my friend J.D. Stewart and my co-author on the book Planet Ocean, Brad Matson. And we were down in the basement of the vertebrate collection and JD just kind of gestures, hey, check this out. And it was sitting on the floor. It was sitting on the, the concrete floor. It looked like it was actually being used as a doorstop. And I'm not kidding you. It was just like, oh, there's this rock over here. I thought it was an ammonite when I first glanced at it, but it's a beautiful spiral. And he said, check it out. That is not an ammonite. Those are shark teeth. And I literally fell to my knees just like, what? 20 years of my life went by.
1: This particular fossil, are the teeth obviously separated from the matrix of the rock? I mean, you can tell they are, like, not enamel because it's so old, but are they shiny and smooth like teeth with serrated edges?
0: Oh, yeah. This was a beautiful concretion that had come from Idaho. But J.D. told me that day nobody's ever understood this spiral of teeth. Nobody's ever figured it out. There have been a lot of theories.
1: And if you look up helicoprions, you can see all these weird different versions of how... People thought they were. Some guy thought it was on the back of a shark.
0: Yeah, and I took this upon myself. And I didn't let it go. But that really is a whole other story.
1: Yeah, so you've been salivating over the helicoprion, the buzzsaw shark, for how many years now?
0: Well, 1993. What's the math? I'm still obsessed with it.
1: But isn't it true that it was through your obsession that New Light and papers were written, pretty much describing how you thought the placement of this whorl of teeth truly existed through your...
0: I was a catalyst.
1: A catalyst, I was a catalyst.
0: Yeah. I was a link. Because there were guys before me that had figured it out, nobody listened to him, nobody popularized it. Right. So I wasn't like I truly figured it out, but then. Yeah, wait. I...
1: You built a metal row of teeth and you were cutting up chunks of ham or something for a demo.
0: Like I said, I went way deep. I went way <laughs> deep, way Good. deep. Good.
1: Good. But that makes you a paleo nerd, dude. It's where you actually lose yourself to your right. obsession. That's what, what a it, nerd is.
0: That is what a nerd is. You don't pay attention to reality. But I got to say, it's, it's this beautiful as an ammonite there's a certain beauty in that that spiral right you know that um, fibonacci sequence if you will it's almost that beauty it's in a
1: flower it's in the way yeah
0: it's in the galaxies it's just and this this one particular fossil and it's on display now it's no longer on the concrete floor out in the uh, rotunda as you walk into the la county museum and you know i had a part in that So now it's on display. It gets the respect that it truly deserves. But it it was just a beautiful fossil.
1: That is awesome. And that is the one that you salivate over. What's the one you've never seen that you'd like to touch or investigate close up?
0: I'd have to give that a good think. And while I'm thinking of that, why don't we pose the question to you? What's the coolest fossil that you have uh, fondled, beheld, and gazed upon?
1: I was fortunate enough to visit a bunch of back collections at museums through your introduction of Kirk Johnson when he was head of the Denver Museum
0: The Denver Museum of Nature and Science and he was the vice one of the vice presidents right. there.
1: And so I visited a exhibit that you had there on the Amazon. Yep. And I was able to go through the collections and I held in my hand a fully massive six, seven inch long T-Rex tooth. Aha. And it was perfect. It was obviously a little brown in color. It wasn't, you know, glistening white with blood on it or anything. But it was so big and so huge, I just, it was a Tyrannosaurus Rex tooth. had sliced through and chomped on many, many other dinosaurs for its 40 year life.
0: Yeah, you know, you were holding the whole thing with the root on it.
1: Yeah, with the
0: root. So the tooth that I found the Nanuksaurus, it was, was
1: just the tip. Yeah,
0: it was broken off. But the Tyrannosaurs were able to grow, you know, more teeth. They would break them off all the time, and so it was breaking off. The one that I held would, had been broken off, chewing on a Hadrosaur, but. But yeah, no, to hold a T-Rex tooth, the whole thing, they're massive. It's it's kind of mind-blowing.
1: But that brings me to the reason why this tooth meant so much to me was because I imagined the millions of sunsets flying by 70 million years to when this creature was alive. And that's what I love about being a paleo nerd is the imagination, trying to imagine these worlds, these ecosystems, the pathology of, of bone, that this was once a living creature, it lived, it died, it drank water, and that imagination is what drives me to love learning about paleo. Is it the same with you?
0: Oh, yeah, man.
1: Why care about
0: dinosaurs, man? Well, it's, it's hard to explain. Kids are easily drawn to them. They're big and impressive. And you have to use your imagination to picture them, and I think that's... But do you
1: do that? Do you dream, do you go back in time, and do you think about a Thursday at 3 o'clock, 77.2 million years? Literally, there was a Thursday at 3 o'clock in the Cretaceous.
0: Right, when comets hit. And one of the things I have learned over the years, too, is that when you look out at the world today, you can't just imagine that there's dinosaurs running around in the in the wilderness that we see today. The world looked completely different. And trying to imagine what that world looked like. The Cretaceous was close to looking like what we have today in terms of forests at the end of the Cretaceous. But you know, we have flowering plants and all that. But Southeast Alaska didn't look like Southeast Alaska. What's a world like without flowers? What's a world like without grass, you know?
1: Grass is recent. Right. Grass is just in the last 50 million years.
0: But I think it's paleontology has taken on a much more important meaning these days in that we humans now are realizing that maybe we've really changed the entire planet and uh, the planet is going through these drastic changes. We have climate change deniers who say, well, the Earth is always going through changes. Well, we know that's true. But if we look at the record, we can really see... How fast. How fast and how rapidly you can get into the the nuances of the argument. The planet usually does not have polar ice caps. We have been living in this sort of fluke of a time period in a way, you know, between... Glaciations. Well, between glaciations, but we're we're coming out of the ice world now rapidly into the warm world.
1: The hottest time the planet has ever seen was not long after the end of the Cretaceous. Right. The hottest time where temperatures were, what, five, 10 degrees hotter than they are now? I mean, it was literally an oven earth.
0: Yeah, they call it the Paleo Eocene Thermal Maximum.
1: That's right. The P E T M. Pet them. Pet them. Go ahead. Pet them. You just pet them. And that was, what, about 50 million years ago? Uh, I think about 55. 55. And when is the rise of whales from a land creature to the ocean? About 50 million years ago, right?
0: Uh, They rapidly evolve in the uh, Eocene. So I've been thinking, Dave, you asked me, what is the coolest fossil I'd ever like to see, right? Yeah. And I've got it, man. There is a there's a gigantic ammonite fossil in British Columbia. It's up in the mountains. I have talked about going there for years and years, friends. You know, I've, I've tried to make a special trip there, but it's in the mountains above Fernie, British Columbia. It's quite a hike, but it is. It's made... not the
1: Burgess Shale, no, is No,
0: the Burgess Shale would be super cool too, but uh, that's on the other side of the province. But Fernie uh, has got some Cretaceous stuff way up in the mountains, and it is the biggest damn ammonite ever man it's like six feet across and maybe even a little bit bigger but people hike up to it, and it's gigantic, and it's just huge. It's it's a magical spot.
1: So it's sitting in the, it's still in the rock then, un, unexcavated.
0: It's still in the rock, and you cannot take it out. And it's been it's been like, it's kind of a well-known secret now. But I guess they're actually taking people up to see it. But I would love to do it. It's quite a hike. It's a massive <laughs> cephalopod stuck in the side of a mountain. Just gives you uh, a real impression of uh, how big those big octopus squid-like, armored creatures were, man. Well, do
1: you think that the mosasaurs and pliosaurs evolved big size because that their prey evolved bigger or they were, they evolved together in size?
0: Yeah, there's a whole big thing happening in the uh, neighborhood below the sea there. And, you know, one thing, a uh, big thing begets another big thing.
1: Yeah, but weren't there ichthyosaurs that were like 60 feet long, a Sh- shoshonosaurus?
0: Yeah, but that's in the Triassic. Wrong again. That's way oh. before, and that actually was probably more like a filter feeder. Didn't have the big teeth. The pliosaurs oh. had the big teeth, and the pliosaurs actually sort of disappeared by the end of the Cretaceous. By then, it was really big mosasaurs, and some of the mosasaurs got fifty feet long. So they're a goddamn big lizard, seago and lizards. That's but...
1: like a that's like a swimming goanna. That's like a, a fifty-foot swimming goanna.
0: Iguana? You mean <laughs> you're trying to say they're they're actually no goanna? What's a goanna?
1: Good day, mate. They're those huge lizards in Australia that are everywhere. A
0: goanna? Yeah. That's how they you don't say know it.
1: know what a goanna is?
0: Oh, I've never heard of it. It's an oh Aussie my thing.
1: Goodness, dear. Dude, they're basically monitor lizards.
0: Well, the closest living relatives of the mosasaurs are the monitor lizards and actually Komodo dragons. So, Komodo dragons, the biggest lizard in the world.
1: Well, I was close then in comparing it to a goanna. <laughs>
0: So that's my cool, that's a fossil I'd love to see.
1: Hey, man, well, we've been
0: talking, with shooting the breeze here, but I want to know, Dave, if you could go back in time, if you could time travel, what time period would you go to and what would you want to
1: see? That's a good one. Um, and I've given it lots of thought over the decades, and I think I would like to go back to the Archean. What? Yeah. I would like to get down there with a microscope and see that very first cell that goes from inorganic to organic. I want to see a bunch of molecules form out of that primordial bubble and turn into a living cell. That's what I want to see. I want to see did it come from a meteorite or, or space dust or was it A million years of soapy suds at the seashore. Where? Was it a lightning bolt that hit the ocean and then caused that, uh, you know, that famous experiment where they took a flask and they filled it with primordial gases and they subjected it to electricity? And I think they created amino acids. But I want to see that first day at 2 p.m. on a Monday Back in the Archean Eon, 4.6 billion years ago, when life first appeared on planet Earth. It probably appeared all over the planet pretty much simultaneously, I would think. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe it was just off the shore of New Jersey. Well, that's pretty cool. You want
0: to actually see the beginning of life on our planet. Yes. It sounds... Kind of dull, though, really. I mean, what about the dinosaurs and stuff, the big scary creatures? You want to see some little tiny things that you can't even see, really?
1: I have Jurassic Park if I want to see dinosaurs. I have Walking with Dinosaurs if I want to see. More documentary type. I have your artwork, which is mind-blowing. I see all the dinosaurs. King Kong. The last King Kong with Jack Black and those three Tyrannosauruses fighting over each other was absolutely... Insane, okay? So it's already there. Right, point taken. No, I want to see the origin of life on planet Earth.
0: And uh, what if you could just sort of uh, stub it out and it, it, nothing ever happened? We wouldn't be here. Oh, man, that's the hippie in me. All right.
1: So in other words, while I'm looking at it, I accidentally lean my <laughs> yeah. elbow on the... <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, and, <laughs> and that's I, And that's I
1: stamp it. out all life on planet Earth. Well, then I guess you'd have to pray to me.
0: Or you could mix your DNA okay, in there okay, somehow. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, now right. you're going crazy. Okay, right.
1: I have a question to ask you now. Oh, you do? Yeah. Of all the epochs and periods on planet Earth, where would you want to go back in time, and why?
0: You keep saying epochs. I say epic. <laughs> We just keep going back. So what?
1: T- wait a minute. Wait a minute. An EPOC, epoch. E P O C H. Epic is E P I C.
0: If you go and you check it out, people don't say epoch. It's it's epic. It's, it's a good check with Wikipedia and the okay. little pronunciation all right. things.
1: All All right. You're always correcting me, Ray. I am
0: David. I'm trying to not be embarrassed when we get finally invited to that great cocktail party with all the paleontologists, and you're over there saying epoch. Epoch. Oh, it'd be so freaking embarrassing.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Anyways, where would I like to, when would I like to go back to? That's the question. I would like to travel back because I'm a fish guy. 380 million years ago. And I want to go to the late Devonian. There's great diversity in the oceans. The placoderms, the duncolosteuses and all that stuff, and the sharks are diversified. And there's big armored fish, but there's also bony fish. And there's a ray finned fish. But then there's the all important lobe finned fish. And these are the fish that gave rise to the amphibians, and then the reptiles, and then the birds, and then the mammals, and then the primates, and to us. So there are no vertebrates walking around on land, and there is this fish, this very famous fish. Like Tiktaalik. Tiktaalik, but actually closer than Tiktaalik. It's been bumped out of the place, uh, out of... uh, the uh, it's not the closest link anymore. There's an animal.
1: John Long's paper.
0: Yes, with a number of Canadian scientists, and it's an animal called Elpistostege, and it's a Devonian uh, lobe finned fish.
1: Easy for you to say. It
0: is El Pistostege. I even do it with a little flair. Elpistostege. Anyways, El Pistostege (laughs) is an incredible transitional animal. Talk about your missing links. But here is a creature that's the fins. Actually have the beginnings of fingers and this transition. You
1: you mean it has the the digits and the... Yes. And so
0: actually fingers, you know, and it is literally... See, that's where the word comes from. But there was a day when that first fish, air-breathing fish, with one bone here, two bones there, you know, in the arms. But then it actually had fingers, and it's using that to prop itself up.
1: Just to recap, the body plan is one big bone in your upper arm, two Bones in your middle arm and then lots of little bones in your hand and fingers.
0: And we had in previous fishes, fish fossils in Tiktaalik, there were the other bones here sort of in the wrist area. But then El Pistostege actually has the fingers in place. The fingers are there. Fish had fingers and they crawled up on the land. And actually talk about, you know, if that day had never happened, if those creatures, if, if... Fish like El Pistostege, and we're pretty sure El Pistostege has got to be, if it's not the animal, it's something darn near. If that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here, man. We wouldn't be talking. And that day that the fish crawled up onto the land and began that transition to amphibians, we wouldn't be here. None of us would be here. We should celebrate that day, you know, International Lopefin Fish Appreciation Day, something like that.
1: I know why you want to be there. Why? Why? Because you want to grab him by the gills and not have to spend all the money on fishing tackle.
0: <laughs> Actually, you could do that. But, you know, what's cool is that, like, you would be the only creature walking. You wouldn't have to worry about something eating you because there's basically nothing in these vast uh, lycopod uh, 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 forests sorry. other than uh, scorpions.
1: The uh, Eurypterids well, the water. both... Yeah, but they apparently were some of the first land creatures because they have uh, trace track fossils of them.
0: I am proud of you, Sensei. Yes, I've taught you well. <laughs> yes, yeah, so there were Eurypterids <laughs> up on land. There were also, yeah, scorpions, big millipedes, and giant dragonflies. They hadn't developed a taste for blood yet, so I don't know.
1: Well, I have a question. So when, uh, what's his name? Stega something?
0: El Pisto Stege. Say it with El me. El That's it. Good man.
1: Alpistostegi. So when Alpistosteges walked on land, that was in the Late Devonian, early that was just before the Carboniferous.
0: Yes, that's right, Late Devonian.
1: So then there were the the huge swampy forests and petrified forest type.
0: That's right. Well, in the Devonian there were big forests too, but uh, they really take off.
1: So there was land plants and everything yeah, for, yeah. Him, for yeah. an environment.
0: Yeah, we see the first land plants in the Silurian. So uh, you know. Millions of years before all this. So the world was, um, yeah, forested at that time in the Devonian. So, yeah, it, it's it'd be a cool time. And uh, I, I would love to actually go to uh, Quebec where Epistol-Stege was found. And that beautiful fossil is on display. And that's our grandma. You know, that's where yeah. we came from, dude. It is. so.
1: It is literally our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparent.
0: And I am not lying to you when I say, scientifically, that you are a wayward lobe-finned fish. You are descended from those fish, so...
1: So then that's not an insult. No, it's a cool thing. If you were to call me a, you dirty lobe-finned fish, is that's a, right. it's really a fact.
0: Your mama was a lobe-finned fish.
1: <laughs> I just love the idea that the fossil record is so complete and so incomplete at the same time.
0: Yeah, man. Dance into the fossil record. It's got a lot of skips in it, though, you know? Got a lot of skips in it, though. Got a lot of skips in it, though. Show us the missing links. And actually, over the last 34 years, we've got so many missing links all filled in. It's it's pretty insane. Well,
1: you know, my dog at the river today was a transitional sea mammal. <laughs> Going back
0: to the sea, was it?
1: He was trying, and he was swimming with his paws and his webbed feet, so... That's
0: how you get seals and sea lions.
1: Okay, so is there any discovery, recent discovery, and I'm almost going to point to Kirk Johnson's Nova TV documentary called Polar Extremes, which shows the amazing habitats and ecosystems that existed at both poles that were obviously much warmer climates Mm -hmm. than exist today. So... What is that going to teach us and how are we going to move forward with this knowledge? And how can we change people's view that we need to do something about the petroleum industry and the burning of fossil fuels and the internal combustion engine is really something that needs to be obsolete?
0: I think we have a real challenge ahead of us because it is a very uh, nuanced argument when you start looking at the fossil record. You know, in some ways, I feel like, yeah, you know, the planet will rebound from the scourge uh, that humanity is causing with the planet. But it's really whether or not we can survive it, the humans can survive it, the planet will do okay.
1: We will survive. Miami, they'll just have to move to higher ground. And what is the highest hill in Florida, 30 feet? I mean, they're going to have to basically move away. You can't keep building seawalls as the ocean rises. Right. There's a point to where a seawall just won't work.
0: The current pandemic that you and I and the rest of the planet are all riding out right now, I what? think should-
1: well, if There's yes. a pandemic?
0: Yes, there is. No way. Yeah, way. That, if, if anything, is taught us how connected and how fragile and interconnected the world is, you know? And just like that, a virus brings humanity to a screeching halt. Yeah. It's a tough road we got ahead of us, man. But I think that, knowledge is power and i think things like goofy paleo podcasts (laughs) and i think the only way really to change the world is the power of 10 year olds and the next generation and the power of education and i think that paleo is a real gateway into that because it's just fascinating you know and it's fun and that's why you know as a kid i was fascinated with dinosaurs because they were real they weren't dragons they weren't trolls they weren't Ogres, they weren't mythical things, they were real. And I soon found out that dinosaurs are one thing and that there were prehistoric mammals and before them there were all these little things like trilobites and ammonites. And so it's been a lifelong adventure and uh, I think paleo is uh, a beautiful way to see the world man because you see it in its entirety. You understand how we came to be here, and how all these different animals came to be here and our part in the animal world. You know, I was brought up as a Catholic, and I'm sorry. I I know you were brought up in a weird religion of of not uh, no. I don't know what you were brought up as, David.
1: The true religion. I was brought up in the true religion of nothing, nothingness.
0: Right. That's pretty heavy stuff. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, I was brought up thinking that we were separate from the animal world,
1: and we are not. Why is science important? I think
0: science is important because science is based on facts, observable, testable facts, facts that are not squishy. You can't have alternative facts, but you can always, you know, seek to find the truth. And that's because maybe one thing that we found out, you know, once upon a time, we find out more things. So it's ever evolving. You got to keep track of it. We know a lot more than now than we did in 1850, right? Right. So by testing and testing and testing and peer reviewed papers and scientific symposiums, we challenge each other, but we arrive at facts.
1: I think we can also say that we can prepare our future by learning from the past.
0: Yes. I think the only way to know where we're going is to know where we've been, right? Awesome. To know about awesome. the past. Through paleo podcasts, through t shirts, through whatever we can, through puppet shows. We can educate the people and have intelligent discussions.
1: You want to do it again? I, I learned so much about you. I didn't. I had no idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe you learned way too much. And there's some things about you I know now too. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> puppets, <laughs> puppets, the being raised with no religion and all that nothingness. Anyways, it was cool. It, I really enjoyed it, man, so let's... Uh... Well, we
1: should do this again. I think we should. I mean, uh, you have uh, a bevy of scientists in your Rolodex, don't you?
0: I do. I got them right over here in the old Rolodex. We could call them up if you want to do it. Who
1: who could we talk to? Who do you know that, uh, that's... Uh, uh...
0: Well, we mentioned the guy a couple times already. How about Kirk Johnson?
1: Oh yeah, huh? Oh, he's a heavy hitter, man. He is what director of the Smithsonian, right?
0: Yes, the director of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, and uh, let's do it.
1: I would love to talk to him. You know what? Why don't we have him be our first episode? Well, really, our second episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the first one's all about us. I like that, you know. But then let's <laughs> let's turn to Kirk, and uh, let's—he's a—he's a bona fide scientist. I think he's. Really one of the planet's greatest minds, and uh, he's a cool guy, and uh, you've met him before, but uh, let's pick his brain.
1: Done. Done deal. All right. All right, well, this is uh, Dave signing off from Ohio, California.
0: Raymond Troll signing off from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska.
1: Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com you'll find tons of pictures and links including photographic
0: evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been paleo nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening.